Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. This is Ken, your RV Navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. And we're talking to you today from our traveling studio located in Acadiana in southeastern Louisiana. The Cajun low country of Louisiana. We just finished attending Mardi Gras, and we have lots that we want to tell you about that. Indeed. But first of all, we want to send a shout-out to someone who may qualify as one of our more distant listeners. You know, I have often mentioned that uh, I look at the statistics for our webpage and I can see the countries that are downloading our podcast, but I never know the people, of course. It just has uh, an IP address and just you know has a listing. And here we have a podcast listener who was nice enough to send us an email, and he's from... Doha, Qatar. Wow. <laughs> and, and that would be a country, when I look at the download statistics, I would think, what kind of camping our are one, they doing there? Our one listener in Qatar. But yes, indeed, even he oh, is doing yes. camping there. Yes. He makes reference to going tent camping 40 miles off-road in the sand dunes along in the, the Inland Sea as a natural getaway. And he's hoping to do this again when he gets moved to Saudi Arabia although security is much tighter there. Wow, that blows my mind. Indeed. And it sounds like he's listening in the, um, in the the with the idea that when he comes back to the United States, which he hasn't done a very good job of traveling around, that he will be joining us in the joining RV lifestyle. And maybe camped at a campground near us. So thanks an awful lot for writing, Tom. We really appreciate hearing from somebody so far away. Or his wife... Fani, Fani. On our last show, we referred you yes. to a, a site on budget travel, which was gathering uh-huh. reader feedback and tips about um, RVing. And uh, we've looked at it again more recently and seen that a lot of people have added good tips to it, uh, especially for those of you who are beginning the RV lifestyle. So we want to refer you to it again. Uh, there are a lot of good suggestions there, and you might learn some things that we haven't talked about yet. And I think one of the ones that I like the best is, is that uh, they say, for a beginner, a smaller, self-powered, self-contained motorhome is easier to handle than a trailer that you tow behind you. Look at the Class B coaches, which are n- nicely finished vans. Class C coaches are wider, longer, and higher and are better ex- for extended living, but easy to drive. Visualize how you'd use each area, living, driving, relaxing, cooking, and eating, and sleeping. What is available to use and, and how comfortable or how well each, each fits your traveling folks. Consumables and capacities are another consideration. How much water, fuel, battery power, storage do you need? And you have to face the yuck factor of emptying those holding tanks eventually. Find a seasoned RVer to help you the first couple of times. I think we met somebody who never uses their bathroom <laughs> and just goes to the bathhouse. That's one way to avoid that problem. But not what I would recommend. And certainly where we're camped right now, there is no bathhouse. So you have to confront it sooner or later. And in almost every campground, we see a wide variety of RVs. And so that they fit the needs of uh, different people at different times in their lives. So uh, talk to an RVer and see what uh, they're doing and and get the best advice you can by, uh, by chatting with people. People in RV parks are very friendly, and they will be glad to give you their opinions about their rig and then 
modify it for your own uses. And now on to the Mardi Gras. We want to start off by correcting stereotypes about how uh-huh. the Mardi Gras is in New Orleans, certainly stereotypes that we ourselves had, and that's why we travel, because you need to see things First for hand. yourself yes. and have um, a more accurate impression of what things are like. Certainly for the Mardi Gras in New Orleans, you see lots of shots of people getting drunk and public urination and women and flashing see- their breasts to get beads. <gasps> well, did that happen? And oh. Oh, no. Can't get any pictures? Oh, no. He would never do such a thing. (laughs) And it was there on Bourbon Street if you wanted to go there and be there at the right time when those activities were occurring. But by and large, we would have to characterize Mardi Gras as a very family-friendly, wholesome activity. Yes. And you you see it on the TV, and they show you um, Mardi Gras Day, Mardi Gras, which is the day Tuesday, Fat Tuesday, and they show you Bourbon Street and... And that's the image that the world has of Mardi Gras. But, as we found out, it is much, much more than that. We were fortunate to spend about 10 days in the New Orleans area. About more than you care to know. (laughs) And and we kind of did it in the lazy way. Um, Generally, we we don't like tours, but when you're coming to a large event like this where you don't know how things work and you don't know where to park and you know there are going to be a lot of people there, it can be nice to have have the guidance of someone who's a native. And we had a wonderful tour guide as we joined an RV rally at a state park on the west bank of the Mississippi. River, which was really south of New Orleans. That yes. river just twists and winds all over the place. We joined Adventure Caravan uh, Travels, and uh, they had a rally. And a rally, the difference between a rally and a caravan, of course, is that in a rally you just park for the entire event, and a caravan you're moving. So we parked for 12 nights as part of the caravan. They took care of the campground and you know every possible detail in the as far as the event goes, and it was very complete. And we were extremely happy with the planning and everything that they did for us. So it was a bit expensive, but it was the way to do Mardi Gras. Twelve days we spent. And so we like to see events in depth and really get an understanding of what it's about. And on those days when Mardi Gras itself didn't offer a lot of activities, especially on weekdays, um, there are all the usual tourist things to do in New Orleans and the area, and we were also busy doing those as well. But if you'd like to go to New Orleans on your own, the Bayou Signet Park. Signet. The Bayou Signet Park is a, a state park that is located within 15 miles of downtown New Orleans, and it is serviced by a ferry, which is a, a ways away from the campground, but uh, it saves you the problem of having to park in the downtown area and takes you right to the French Quarter. So if you're thinking about going either to New Orleans or to Mardi Gras, then you might want to consider this uh, state park as a very viable option. Um, You know, water and electric hookups is uh, common with many state parks, but it is a very nice park with large sites and very reasonable prices. The campgrounds in New Orleans itself were small and very expensive, well over $100 a night whereas ours was 18 or 20 or something. I don't know. We didn't pay for it, so... 
And it felt kind of good to be away from the city in the Indeed. evening. And they had uh, the adventure caravans had a, uh, a tent set up for us because you could never depend on the weather in New Orleans. And the tent provided us with an area to have some potlucks and to gather together to hear various presentations and to uh, just as a, as a meeting place for the group because there were 24 rigs involved. So that's uh, 48 people, which makes into one nice bus. So the other thing that they did for us was provide us with bus transportation to all of the major events so we didn't have to drive at all. And usually we got dropped off fairly close to where the action was. Uh, Some of the parades we attended with our lawn chairs, so you put the lawn chairs in the bottom of the bus and pulled them out and joined the neighbors on the street who were lining up to watch the parade. And that took us away from the tourist viewing areas. So that was also fun to meet some of the locals and see what a family event these parades really are. I had no idea that there are about 50 parades during the Mardi Gras uh, period. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of them are in New Orleans and some are in the surrounding suburbs. So another thing you could do if you come to Mardi Gras and you don't have the arrangements made to go downtown is see a lot of very nice parades on the periphery of the city. Um, I had an email this morning from someone who said, uh, I thought that Mardi Gras was a parade and the debauchery that goes on on Bourbon Street on Fat Tuesday. And that's not even half of it because there are over 50 parades <laughs> 50 which is hard to believe i mean we had no concept of this and we went to 12 um it would be almost impossible for you to go to all 50 and you wouldn't want to really but each one is sponsored by a crew a crew is a social group. Uh, some of them are formed um, in neighborhoods or by people who have some professional interest in common or people whose grandpappy were in that crew, and so then they're going to be in it too. And crew is spelled K-R-E-W-E. K-R-E-W-E. Thank you. And I tried to learn something. <laughs> um, and these crews actually sponsor the parades and we were surprised to learn that uh, the entire Mardi Gras is privately funded. The only thing the city pays for is the police protection and the giant cleanup job after it's all over. What we mean by private funded is not uh, sponsorship by a corporation or by some large organization that has uh, deep pockets. Each of the participants in the parade paid to be there, paid for the float construction, paid for the costumes that they were wearing, and paid for the, in some cases, up to $1,000 worth of things they threw at the people who were watching the parades. Beads is the predominant throw, but they also (laughs) threw things like stuffed animals and Frisbees and footballs and Zulu spears and coconuts and all sorts of things. And... And that's what makes these parades so much fun. We've been to some very nice parades. I'm thinking thinking of the Rose Bowl parade in particular in Pasadena, which I really enjoyed. But the fact that you are interacting with the people on the floats brings us up a notch and makes it kind of an interactive, participatory event. And if you don't have a good spot for this parade, uh, all you have to do is get there a little bit earlier for the next one, and you'll get a good spot uh, in order to catch the beads or the throws, as they say, all of the good stuff that's coming off. Off the, <laughs> off the, 
the, the people we were we we took the ferry over to New Orleans. Coming back on the ferry it was very interesting because there were people who had obviously we we didn't go to to go to a parade, but we just kind of took the ferry over to see what was what it was about. And the people coming back on the ferry had uh, dollies full of bags of beads. And we must admit we came back with quite a few ourselves. Yeah, yeah, but not on the ferry. And these folks uh, would have pounds. I mean, a hundred pounds of beads. Yeah, you're easy. not exaggerating. I mean, more than you could, more than you could legitimately carry. And one of the big uh, uh, items to catch are the empty bags. That the beads originally came in when so the crew members bought them. So you could fill them up with your own beads that you uh, that you catch. So they have these quite nice bags. I mean, they're they're sturdy, um, tough plastic the, with a zipper. The beads come shipped from China in bags, and then they empty the bags by throwing the beads to the crowd, and then they throw the bag out at the end, and then the crowd members go out and get the bag and put their own beads in it. So these people come back with carts on the ferry that were just full of beads. And I said to one lady, what are you going to do with all these beads? I mean, for us to come once in our life and to collect, well, we collected. Way too many. Way we're, too many. We're asking ourselves the same question. What are we going to do with all but these that's a beads? That's probably once in a lifetime sort of deal. And we, I, she said, oh, we're going to put them in our attic. <laughs> and the joke in New, in New Orleans is that uh, it, New Orleans is sinking. And, of course, it is below sea level automatically. It's 12 feet below sea level, as we found, and every piece of water has to be pumped out of it after a rainstorm. But that the reason why it's sinking is because everybody's attics are full of beads. My theory is they should take all those beads and add them to the levees that they're building higher and higher around the city. Oh, yes. And then they'll be just fine. <laughs> Indeed. So we went to 12 parades. And the first few parades uh, were relatively small. Some of the crews have as few as 15 floats, and sometimes the parades are a collection of three crews kind of back-to-back. But as the uh, days came closer to Fat Tuesday, uh, the crowds got thicker and thicker, and we were glad that the last few parades we looked at, um, the Travel Caravan Company had booked us seats in a grandstand so that we didn't have to arrive the night before and sleep on the People street, as right. some of the locals Prized do. spots are absolutely... And even in our after. good grandstand seats, it was a challenge to catch beads unless wow. you were sitting in the perfect spot uh, because they hurled them out of the floats, and there were... People People in balconies above us that they were hurling them at, and um, when the when the parade is over, you can see the many beads that did not meet yes. the target that they were being hurled <laughs> the at. Becomes just litter. They're hanging beads. in the trees. They're strung on the electric wires, and all the plastic bags that what the beads that. originally came in are on the street as well. The beads that didn't get to where they were supposed to go, or they broke. And immediately after the parade is over, it is followed by the cleanup crews, and they have found that getting every Everything cleaned up very promptly is the way to do it, and we were very well, we've got impressed. Another parade coming down the road in a few minutes. We were very impressed when we yes. returned to those areas the next day, and everything was as immaculate as it could be. It was very interesting to see this, and as she said, there were very family events, and of course, kids are short, so they want to have the kids see the parade. So people have special ladders with little platforms on top of them for the kids to sit in. It reminded me of go kart boxes, kind of. Well, they had wheels well, on them. Well, they had wheels so that they could roll the whole ladder Lattered. and the box for the kids. But they set up the ladder, and the kids sit in there. They have little seat belts and 
things to hold them in. So the kids are up above the crowd, and we're not talking about a few ladders. We're talking about hundreds street lines, street lines ladders. Uh, yeah, and and that had we had never seen that before. So these are obviously professional parade goers, and that's what leads to our uh, impression that this is a very much of a family event. We would go out there and we chatted with these folks. Everybody was they were grilling and they had uh, like tailgating and dancing. Yeah, music and beer and everybody was just having a very big party time, but not wild raucous. It was very controlled, at least in the in the neighborhoods. So if you didn't go to Bourbon Street, you wouldn't see anything unseemly no. at all. No. Oh, nothing unseemly, no. And they had, well, they considered these the family parades and then the more risque parades. But even so. Yeah, but it, even so. I would feel not, comfortable taking a, a kid to those parades. Yeah, yeah. I mean... The the floats are, are just unbelievable. I don't know how many there are. There there must be hundreds of floats, and they're all built by one company. Almost all. We went to a warehouse where they were being built and loaded with beads. What was his name? Blaine Kern. Blaine Kern. Yes. He's been he's eighty years old now, and he's been doing <laughs> floats since he was a young man. They started with paper mache, but these days they use fiberglass, which is good because it's impervious to the but weather for one day. And then after the Mardi Gras is over, they um, take all the component parts out of the floats and sand them down and in many cases they can repaint them and reuse them but not always and, and so you do all this work all year round for one they day start the day after Mardi Gras to, uh, next year is because they have to do all these floats again because there are so many of them and then the expressways are all tied up because there are floats being brought to the beginning of the route and by tractors by tractors and you know just but everybody says hey it's Mardi Gras that's the way it goes we were driving down the expressway and there was a huge jam up and uh we decided that it was there was we could see below us because the expressway was elevated that there was a parade going on and people were just involved with the parade and not worried about getting off the expressway there's another aspect to mardi gras we only saw on tv that we didn't really understand as well is that many of these crews have giant very formal very real ritualistic balls and performances in tuxedos and Evening gowns, leadership structure, cotillions, yes. kings and royal courts. They have it on TV uh, for a long time. That a couple nights before these balls. That uh, so there's a lot of, of tradition and history and here that we didn't, we didn't totally understand. understand. And of course, the African Americans who bring some different traditions to their parades. Um, many of their crews are associated with Indians, American Indians, because at one time they and the Indians were the social outcasts in the city and they kind of merged and brought their traditions together and many of the african-american crews do beadwork in their costumes and feathers somewhat like indian costumes but much more elaborate and colorful and yes some of the costumes they said cost like ten thousand dollars it's just unbelievable that the the tradition and the expense involved in these these costumes and the whole thing is just outrageous <laughs> from our perspective but they are social events and so that much are planned fun. for the entire year and i think uh, you know getting together and planning and, and, and organizing making, your and making the costumes is is something that people really find a uh, part of the tradition and it was just so great to be in a place where everybody was there to have a good time and have fun and nobody got annoyed was, or impatient or and there was plenty of opportunity for that i mean there were lots of crowds so 
Let's talk a little about, for a minute, our experiences on Bourbon Street. Well, I was going to talk about my costume. Oh, sorry. Oh, you yes. don't go to Fat Tuesday without <laughs> some kind of a costume. And again, we profited from the leadership yes. of our guide who designed... Who's with us all 12 days. ...who designed our costumes for us. They involved sheets that we wore and signs now, that we put, made... They put a head hole in it. ...and signs that we made to wear around our necks that had some versions of the word shit, but we spelled it <gasps> sheet. And well, I was dumb sheet. And I was really... Sheedy. And there were many variations of this. So they had 48 little phrases that we wrote on signs that uh, made up our costume. And on Fat Tuesday, before the first parade, we ourselves walked down the street where the parade was going to take place. Many people were already there waiting, and we became the parade. And people were very glad to see us in our costumes. We were interviewed on the radio. On the radio. And, And we felt like stars of the show for a minute. It was very fun. So then we headed to Bourbon Street to kind of see and be seen and see all the costumes that people had made yes, yes. to wear there, some of which were fairly unseemly. So Mardi Gras on Bourbon Street is primarily people, uh, yes, drinking, but everybody is, or most people, I would say 75% of the people yeah. were in costume of yeah. some sort. I mean, they were costume, and some of them were very elaborate, and then there were other people having mini parades, and bands playing, live bands playing music, and people were just walking up and down Bourbon Street kind of showing off. Uh, many of the oh, buildings yes. on Bourbon Street have balconies, <laughs> and you pay $50 to be on the balcony, and they apparently supply you with beads when you're up there. We didn't do this. No. And so they throw the beads down to the people that are walking along. And you have to really pay attention because you can get beamed by um, a bead that's flying your direction when you don't expect it. And this is where um, young women would get especially attractive beads if, yes. they, if they did some... <laughs> especially attractive beads. ...flashing. Um, and some of them were allowing themselves to be videoed. So <gasps> probably on Facebook somewhere today. Heavens, what a debaucherous affair this is. This was uh, lots of drinking in the streets, but we didn't see anything really... Unseemly. Nothing that I mean, made us nervous were, or frightened. No, we, we just were, got more and more crowded, crowded with people wandering up and down the street. I don't know if anybody was in the bars. We were warned about pickpockets, yeah. but wearing our sheety costumes uh, pretty much <laughs> covered up our pockets. And nobody in our group lost anything. Would you care to repeat that, please? <laughs> No sheet. <laughs> this was a, a quite an experience, um, and uh, that that was the last day. The other days uh, down Bourbon Street were just uh, ordinary people walking up and down, and, and there were lots of tourists there. But I would say that most of the people on Bourbon Street were also locals. I was under the impression this was kind of like Super Bowl or like uh, the Rose Parade, where there aren't a lot of locals. It's primarily out of out of town people. But I got the impression here that this was. I would say 75 or 80 percent locals. I remember reading that 40,000 New Orleanians participate in one of, one or more of the parades. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. So other things we did as part of the uh, rally was uh, we went to a cooking school. We went to Which the was Orleans. amazing. If there's one thing <coughs> these people know how to do, it's cook. And the the, the food down here is unique and special. I would guess a blend of French cooking and African cooking, taking advantage of all the local seafood here. And I've read that Louisiana is the most obese state in the country. And yeah, after we, eating here for a few days, we can understand why. This it's not food very healthy, but it is good. Irresistible. So we went to the cooking school and we learned how to make roux. And pralines. And pralines. 
and pecan pie. And pecan pie. And then after and then the chef had, taught us how to make it all, we ate it. And we had gumbo. Yes, delicious. So I could make the, uh, a New Orleans dinner for us. If you had a lot of time. Ooh, I'm going to buy the roux in the store. That'll help. Ah, yes. And we also toured a few of the plantation homes outside the city. There's kind of a trail of them between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. You can make a two-day drive, I would say, um, taking a look at all these homes. Uh, We saw two. Uh, New Orleans also has what appeared to be a quite new and excellent World War II museum. The subject didn't particularly interest me. I know about as much about World War II as I want to know, but but the the factor that brought it here was uh, all the boats that they used. No. Uh, to land to, the landing uh, craft, the military on beaches, D-Day in particular, and certainly other places. I assume which they transformed were the war. And those were locally produced because and people here—not produced, but invented. People here. here have to do a lot of landing boats um, from the water because there's water everywhere. Fishing. And these are the ones that you've seen the. D-Day landing. That have the front end that just kind of is a platform that plops down. Nobody had thought about them doing that before, and uh, the U.S. military bought thousands and thousands of them for all sorts of uh, amphibious landings that they needed to do, and it was the best way, rather than having the troops jump over the the gunnels of a ship in order to uh, get onto the beach. And they credited this ship, these little boats, with winning D-Day. Or at least that was the take in New Orleans. <laughs> so it, it's a well-done museum. If the subject interests you and it's a rainy day, I would certainly recommend it. And they have a nice aquarium and uh, other nice things. Oh, we went on a riverboat cruise yeah. to see a bit of the shoreline. and Because the... everything around here is uh, concerned with the Mississippi River. And then uh, we did have a day off, and we took uh, we chose that time to take a bicycle tour of the Lower Ninth Ward. We maybe mentioned this, that uh, we originally were going to do the Mardi Gras, um, but Katrina happened. Six years ago. Six years ago, we were going to do the same thing. We couldn't, obviously, because and we even lost our deposit because the company was in New Orleans. And, and floated away. And floated away, and we never heard from them again. And they are not in business anymore. But uh, we did want to see the devastation, and... You can't. It's really, really hard to believe. Uh, New Orleans has really revived itself. But we would be driving through communities, and our guide would say, "Now, do you see the line on the houses over there? That's how high the water was in this area." And then you'd drive in another area, and it would be less. And you know, they would talk about uh, how far the water had come because that's still a standard of uh, how much damage was done. And at our campground, they were rebuilding the levee. We could hear the pile mm-hmm. drivers. Um, pounding the supports in and one of the things that they told us on the Lower Ninth Ward tour was that the Army Corps of Engineers had not built the levees properly. Um, New Orleans is a bowl below sea level has no solid bedrock underneath so you have to really drive the supports for the levees deep and they had not done it deeply enough and so the people who lived in the Lower Ninth Ward were trusting that they would be protected by the levees and as we all know they broke and this area which was a poor area and and had a lot of elderly people living there who had paid for their homes but had no home insurance uh, was was probably yes. the most devastated part of the city. And is still devastated. And you can certainly go there on a 
bus tour and flash through it, but we thought doing it on a bike tour with a guide would be less obtrusive and give us a better understanding of how things are going there now. And it's very hard in these flooded areas because you see all these empty places yes. and you don't know what was there before. <clears throat> and the Lower Ninth Ward was uh, interesting, <laughs> not because of what we saw, but because of what we didn't see. Um, we would go through other neighborhoods and it was chock-a-block with houses. You know, the houses were like three feet apart and they call them shotgun houses because they are just a long corridor and when you walk in you have to walk through all the rooms in order to get to the back of the house and of course the lower ninth ward was similar chock-a-block with houses but what struck us is the vast amounts of empty space they told us that only 15 percent of the people have returned seven years later uh, is in a, is telling you that there are not many people who are living in the Ninth Ward anymore. Although the area, the land has healed in terms of they've gotten the debris gone and the houses are... The, Plants are growing again. Yeah, and it's green. and The, <laughs> the area is, is like a no-man's land because hardly anybody lives there. It's just uh, very striking that way. One thing they complained about, which I think is a problem for any natural disaster, I'm thinking of the Japanese earthquake we've just been watching on TV, is that people wanted to help and tried to help. And once you get past that, giving people food and water and a place to lay their heads, how do you help? And it seemed like some of the do-gooder organizations came in and did things that they thought would be the right thing to do without asking the locals what they really needed. And so we saw some beautiful homes that had been constructed by charitable groups that were standing empty because they were too expensive for the people who used to live there to take on, which is a real shame. They said the average house in the uh, Lower Ninth Ward cost $70,000 and that now the average house costs $130,000, which is by most standards in the United States is not a lot, but... If you can't afford it, you can't can't afford afford it. Yeah, if a $70,000 house, and most people, many people owned them outright, and when they owned it outright, they didn't have to have insurance because they didn't have to have a loan. Therefore, when their house went away, they had no way to rebuild because they just were not... It did not have enough money to rebuild. And apparently some of the construction, the government aid programs, we required paperwork and proof of ownership. And in some cases, these people were sloppy with their paperwork. In other cases, it also was destroyed and floated away. And so uh, restitution has been a spotty thing. So uh, it was an enlightening experience and one that we were glad that we had, but uh, glad we didn't have to live through also. Because yeah, very it sad. Was, it was very sad. Um, and But much of New Orleans was affected. Even the campground that we were in, they said, was under six feet of water. Um, But there was no evidence of that at this time. It was outside of the fact there weren't any really big trees. And it was nice to see in the Lower Ninth that there still are some uh, student groups and church groups that are coming in and and volunteering and working and helping. Uh, So that activity is still ongoing. You kind of think it's all out of our minds and we're on to the next disaster. And New Orleans has not been forgotten because it truly is a special place. Yes, and it is is good to see that uh, New Orleans is a special place and that there are places like this in the United States which you should miss. So we can strongly recommend that you hit New Orleans, even if you're a family, and uh, and you will have a good time because uh, New Orleans is a very welcoming city and it is a party city, but is a fun city also. Um, and we had a very good time. 
and the rally, as far as we're concerned, is the way to go. Um, but you know that we've done the rally at the Calgary Stampede. We and the did, Albuquerque Balloon Rally. And we did uh, the NASCAR Rally. And anyway, we've done several of these because they take care of the details, which you would have a hard time doing. And certainly in terms of efficiency of our time, this rally was outstanding because they really had things scheduled very nicely so that we would get to events and get to the big events and see them and get back without uh, any hassle. Well, we don't have a lot of time for other news, I guess, so we'll just kind of We've talk. We've just been rattling on. <laughs> we hope you find this interesting, and we don't want to uh, you to forget that you can send us an email and uh, let us know what you think about the podcast. Visit our website, navigator at rvnavigator.com, of course, is our email, and we always, always like to hear from our listeners. As you know, we always like to include a humorous <laughs> item or two in the podcast, and uh, that was one well, I don't know if this that is... made us laugh, but it would have made us cry if it had happened to us. Yeah, um, cry is the word. Uh, the article starts out, you can do many things with an RV. You can use one to take a vacation. You can use one as a seasonal home. You can even use one as a primary residence if you've fallen on hard times. Just don't use one as a boat launch. <laughs> he was trying to sell the the RV and was demonstrating that it could be used to launch a boat and backed it right off into the water. Ouch. Ouch. Well, you've probably experienced high prices in fuel. And Everybody's here, worried about everybody it. Down, everybody down here uh, is experiencing that, but we know it's much more expensive in other parts of the country. And although we think that RVing is very cost-effective, uh, there is a sign on a shell station that I'm going to include on the website that uh, regular costs an arm, pl- uh, regular plus costs a leg, and premium costs your firstborn. <laughs> That's what it feels like. <laughs> <laughs> and diesel is out of sight. <laughs> but the good thing you is... You have to sell that, a kidney. You know, in the last month, we haven't driven, let's see, we've driven about 350 miles in the last month. So if you average it out per day, we can still rationalize and justify it. Yeah. It does give you pause. And we're not even thinking about going home yet, but we are. It's not safe. It's not safe to go home? We've been watching the weather, and it's still too cold. And they've been getting a heck of a lot of snow. As the as you northerners already know, the snow is piling up. But if you're an RVer, you might, and if you are worried about space and uh, you do some cooking outdoors, you might want to consider the Camp Kitchen. And the Folding Camp Kitchen from Lewis and Clark is available on Amazon, and it looks quite sturdy to me. I haven't actually seen one in, in uh, first hand, but it has a place for your ice chest and your uh, stove and it sets up quickly. Um, so you might want to consider that. I put the link, of course, onto the web sh- onto the show notes on the webpage. There's an RV-oriented movie that we're looking forward to. We're going to put the 30-second movie trailer um, on, <laughs> on our, I don't know if we're looking on our site. To uh, the premise is that space aliens have invaded Earth, and at least one is taking an RV road trip. So that sounds like it would be a cute film to look out for. We'll let you know if we... if we Aliens in an RV. We'll, we'll give you a review when we get to see it. Now, another one that I found was uh, a new product offered by Camping World. It's called The Wall. Wallop, W-A-L-L, and it is a way for you to put up a 16 by 12 wall in two minutes. 
and it will offer you a resist, wind resistance. So you can sit behind it. You could use it as a shower. You could uh, you could use it for whatever you need to to, to protect yourself against the wind. Um, seems like kind of a nice idea. There's always times when you're sitting on the beach or you're sitting someplace and there's too much wind. And if you could set up a wind-resistant wall, that would be uh, kind of nice. So it includes uh, the anchor stakes, poles, and everything from Camping World. And I'll include the link to that, of course, on the webpage. Um, another excellent link we're going to put on our um, page has to do with shopping for a used RV. Ten costly mistakes you don't want to make. And, of course, you know that we have a used RV, so we are advocates of getting a used RV. But you do want to be cautious when you do when you buy an RV. It strikes me as I look over these ten costly mistakes that it would be nice if there were home inspection people like you have <laughs> when you buy a new stick-built house uh-huh. well, that could help idea. you go over your RV and know what to look for. Because certainly if you're new to the RV world, there could be so, problems you wouldn't recognize. Well, and this is another time when talking to an experienced RVer would be helpful. Would be helpful and give them, uh, they could give you the their take on some of the things that you that you look at. So one of the first things you want to look at is water damage. You know, if you see stains in the ceiling or, you know, stains on the wall, what are those stains from? And you want to kind of round, go around and touch things and see if they're solid, because if they're bubbly or spungy, uh, they might like the be floor. they might be dry at this floor. point, but they were very wet at some time in the past, and that could cause you problems. And water doesn't necessarily take a straight path, so it, water could be in a very strange place, and there might not be any holes on the outside that uh, would indicate that there's uh, that there's a ho- that there's a leak. But you know, water damage can cause you big problems in the future, and it's expensive to fix. And on the other side of the coin, the sun can be equally damaging because RVs are outside all the time. Uh, and the fabrics, like your window coverings, we hear a lot of people complain about the strings on their blinds breaking. Mm-hmm. And that's because the sun has rotted the or strings. Faded. And uh, it's hard on fabrics. Yes, it's hard on all sorts of stuff. Dashboards crack. Uh, things become brittle as they dry out. And uh, that needs to be looked at uh, to make sure that it's not... Um, causing permanent damage. Now, we should take a look at the roof, and most roofs are made out of uh, some rubberized fabric, but most of them are guaranteed for at least 10 years, and so they're designed to be out in the sun, and when you see chalking on the roof, meaning that you get uh, black streaks down the side, or it looks chalky up on on the surface of the roof... And, of course, the Mrs. RV Navigator would never know this. I'm not into the roof. (laughs) I don't like high places. When you see that up on the roof, you know that it is, uh, that's okay. That's not a design flaw, and it's not your roof disintegrating. But so you would go up on the roof and do something every so often to keep well, it. Well, I use Dicor to seal these spots on the roof, <clears throat> and you need to go up there and look to see if the caulking is cracked and if it's if it's still soft. It needs to be soft, and make sure that it has not uh, broken its seal so that it it's leaked because it could be a leak up there which you wouldn't necessarily see on the inside, but it could be in the roof or someplace that 
could cause you damage in the long run. And of course, the sun also damages the rubber in your tires. Yes, and, and this is also confusing to novice RVers because when you buy a new car, yes. you always look at the mileage on the tires. Right. And many used RVs have very low mileage, but the tires have been sitting there in the sunshine. And after six or seven years, that means they need to be replaced, as expensive as they are. So we looked, we should, we gave you an article listing last month, uh, or one of the previous episodes anyway. Now that we're doing two a month, I don't know how we lost, lost track. <laughs> But uh, on how to read the code on the side of the of the tires to see how old they are. And uh, tires that are more than seven years old are definitely candidates to be replaced. And then back to water. Uh, water causes rust. Um, RVs that are stored in backyards often wick moisture from the ground into the under, undercarriage. And anything under there that be- gets rusty can break. Frames corrode. Plumbing fixtures develop leaks. And brakes become inoperative. And especially if they've been sitting for a long time. And you have to ask, why is this RV being sold? Is it being sold because uh, it hasn't been used in a long time and it's been sitting there for two or three years? And even though it has very few miles on it, uh, sitting there in the backyard for two or three years could be an indication that it is uh, not in good shape anymore. And just like when you buy a new home, you want to check all the appliances. Uh, someone may tell you, well, the refrigerator isn't working so good, but that's easy to be replaced or it just needs a fuse. Um, by and large, our appliance problems are more expensive than our house appliance yes. problems and are not easy to replace and and fix. And finding people who know how to do those things, they're not always readily available. No, no. And a refrigerator in particular, which is probably one of the biggest appliances that has to be replaced, is close to $2,000 for most types of uh, RVs, unless you have a very small one. So you want to think carefully about uh, whether it's working, and is it working on gas as well as electric, because that's critical also. Um, It's certainly easy to damage your plumbing, especially if you're from northern climates as we are. Um, Even if you do a good job of winterizing and putting in the antifreeze, it's hard to remember to put it everywhere, Everywhere, as as we have have discovered. (laughs) Luckily, our little freezer problems problems have have been minor minor and things that were easy to fix. Um, Like the sprayer. Yeah, on the kitchen and in the bathroom. And if you have an outdoor shower, it has to be water. It has to be freeze-protected. But maybe you live in some place that doesn't freeze. Oh, are you lucky? Yes, you are lucky. And I didn't realize that even if you buy a fairly new RV that's still under warranty, that those dod-rotted manufacturers don't always pass the remaining days of the warranty on to the second owner. Yeah, well, that that all the appliances and everything uh, have a warranty of their own. So some the manufacturer warranties the integrity of the coach, but they don't necessarily warranty each of the appliances. And so that all of those are covered by individual factory warranties, including the chassis and the engine and that sort of stuff. Bring your lawyer with you. Well, you're just going to lose, so why bother? (laughs) Well, you need to know what you're getting into. And certainly, unlike a stick-built house, your RV is not going to appreciate in value. And these days, I'm not sure sure if your stick-built house will either. Uh, Resale value plunges faster in the RV industry than anything else offered for sale. Make sure you know what style of RV you really want or need, because when you go to trade it back in for something else, the penalty will be staggering. Well, but but by the same token, you can get a good deal. Why 
why you're buying one to get a good price. And the depreciation is something you don't want to have to pay. So paying, so we bought this for half the price. Well, I would say if you're buying a cheaper rig, buy new. And if you're buying a more expensive rig, buy used. Well, I think it depends on how it's been used. Checking and all these and points. Why it's being sold. I th- to, to understand why it's being sold and you know not be taken in by stories is important. Match your rig. It's your responsibility to know what size trailer can be towed by your vehicle. Uh, and we learned a hard lesson that way, too, when I um, totaled our yes, indeed. travel trailer on the interstate. So we won't go through that again, but it is critical that you understand the towing and and that you just don't hook up a big trailer to a small car. And certainly we know a lot of people who have had tire problems because they're mm-hmm. trying to pull too, too much, much weight, weight for their tires. Well, their trailer was overweight. Uh-huh. Not that it didn't make any difference whether they were towing it or not. The trailer, they just put too much junk in it. Easy so to make do. sure that it has enough capacity to, you know, take it out and get it weighed and see how much capacity it has. It's, it, there's a sticker right inside the the cabinet that tells you how much that trailer can hold. And their last point is to be well-informed, something that's important for any major purchase that you're going to make. Know as much as you can about the different types and styles of RVs so that you will have a better idea of what you will want and need when you buy an RV. Knowledge is power. Do your research. Absolutely. So with those enlightening notes, we will take another pause for a couple of weeks only two weeks because we are having to come back again and talk to you oh no we're enjoying it we're enjoying it we We, we like to talk with our listeners and they have told us that they enjoy having two podcasts to listen to every month instead of just one so we are happy to do it especially when we have fun and exciting things like mardi gras yeah well we're out on the road doing interesting things yes it's easy just to rattle on Are we rattling on? I hope not. We hope that you've enjoyed the podcast and that you'll listen next time. And we will be parked in a campground near you up north in the not-too-distant future. Well, working our way north. Working our way north. Okay. When it's safe. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.